Hello and welcome to Mixbus with me, Kevin Paul. This series aims to allow some of the best producers, mixers, engineers and other music industry people to discuss their careers and their approach to music. The success of this series depends on people hearing it, so don't forget to tell your friends if you like what you hear and remember to give it a five-star rating and please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, special offers and promotions. This episode is brought to you in association with KMR, the UK's leading independent pro-audio retailer and recorded in association with Audient and the ID44. Find out more at kpmixbus.com and follow us on facebook.com slash kpmixbus and at kpmixbus on Instagram and Twitter. My guest today is the legendary Gareth Jones. After initial training at the BBC in the late 70s, he started his journey at Pathway Studios in London and helped build the Garden Studio in Shoreditch. In the early 80s, he moved to Berlin for 10 years and worked at the legendary Hansa Studio. His work goes all the way back to 1980 and includes artists such as Fad Gadget, Depeche Mode, Wire, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Erasure. More recently, he's worked with Stubbleman, The Leisure Society, Spiritual Friendship and Jan Tiersen. It's fair to say that I could fill the entire podcast just mentioning the names of the artists he's worked with. Gareth is a pioneer in the use of digital equipment and combines this with analogue recording techniques and his love of synthesizers. Gareth, welcome to Mixbus. Thanks for having me here. How are you? Thanks, Kevin. It's uh, really nice to welcome you back to my little shed in Shoreditch. Mm. After too many years, it's great to see you. I'm really well and delighted to be a part of your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Hasn't changed much, if I'm honest. Was it decorated with Jamie's work last time, or has it always been? No, the, uh... Uh, this is an artist called uh, uh, Ben. I love Jamie Reed's artwork, yeah. and I got kind of quite inspired by it when I moved here first in the 90s, Yeah. because in the Studio One in the Neve Room, it's like a Bedouin tent in there. Yes. Have you been in the Neve Room here? Not recently, it's, it's super, but a long time it's ago. gorgeous. It's like lined with silks. It looks like silks. I thought, oh, that's nice. Uh, I don't have to have a grey or a brown studio. I could have colours. Yeah. But I couldn't afford Jamie Reed, and I met a lovely guy called Ben, and I commissioned him to do these uh, these paintings that are on the wall. Yeah, it's very nice, uh, very cosy, yeah. very relaxed. Trippy, man. What drew you to the studio in the first place? Because you've dedicated yourself to recording. Your passion for recording is well-known in the industry. Where did it all start? It started... At school, I suppose. I mean, I got my love of uh, of uh, uh, recording music from my dad. When I went into rock and roll, I, I felt I was being a bit of a rebel because, uh, you know, my dad was a school teacher and I was uh, I should have been a doctor or a lawyer or something. Right. Okay. And uh, but it turned. But many years later, I thought, oh, the old man's hobby was like listening to his records, and he really loved it. He had he built a little speaker that went in there, uh, like a a bass reflex cabinet that went across the corner of the living room and he he, he, he mucked about with his hi-fi. He had an old Rogers valve hi-fi. Uh, so anyway, uh, not only did I owe, like many of us, I owe like loads to my parents, but but I got a definite love of, um, of music and recorded music okay. uh, from the old man. So, and then somehow... When I was at school, I was in, I, I did all the usual things that you do at school, I suppose. Uh, bunked off and <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, but I like mu- I like my music lessons. I liked uh, sound effects. I played around with tape recorders for okay. school plays and shit. 
So I started editing and recording, and then I bought a beautiful, uh, sadly I don't have it anymore, I bought a, a Ferragraph Series 4, uh, like a tube-based uh, uh, mono tape recorder, with, uh, from some money I made picking fruit in the summer, for some reason. I mean, I was only a kid, I don't know why I bought it, but I felt that I needed to have a tape recorder. And then I started recording my friends at school. I think the mic, I think was like total, I think it was a crystal mic, like a real dodgy mic. So I, I did a bit of record and a bit of editing, uh, mucking around with, uh, I found that super powerful once I realized you could actually cut the tape. Okay. I don't yes. think I was doing like the creative musical edits, but in, uh, because I wasn't that on it. But I, I was doing, you know, cutting a bit of music and then cutting it into a sound effect and then cutting it into a bit of speech. Oh, okay. And this so, was like so super some early sort of radio editing almost. Kind of vibe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like um, like we made, and I made some things like like little radio dramas, I suppose you they might be. I made a few okay, uh, weird little recordings with them with mates. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of my discovery of music and uh, love of music and enjoyment of music has been through recorded music. You know, from being a student and listening to headphones through the night when I should have been asleep so I could get to lectures early in the morning. Yeah, uh, sure. And, uh, you know, so so making records is a, is a response to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually making stuff that's very been very musically important to my, to my journey. You know, some okay. people come to come to music by, by playing in a band or, or loving gigs or, or, yeah. or, you know, in the classical world, just uh, giving great concerts, you know. But my, my vibe has always, I've always loved it, like a couple of speakers or, or a set of headphones. Yeah, and, and, and you've always, as long as I've known you, you've always pushed the envelope with your recording. I mean, you, you know, you've told me many times about your time with Depeche Mode, for instance, where you were recording on balconies, uh, recording drum sounds just from the street or putting something in a bin and recording the sound of something going into the bin and you've got a microphone there recording that and then trying to do something with it on the other end. You know, is that just something that you just thought, I'm just going to have a go at that? No, I, I basically, I didn't know what I was doing. That's why it seems like we were being adventurous because right. I didn't know how to do it properly. So, uh, you know... <laughs> I've kind of got a very basic training, as you mentioned, at the, at the BBC, right, okay. which was hugely valuable at the time, and, and, but it, it was super basic. But I never had the pleasure of being an assistant in a great studio okay. uh, where, where you get the opportunity to work with masters uh, uh, of the art, yes. you know, both um, musical, musical geniuses, men and women, and, and back in the yeah. 70s, mostly uh, production and engineering geniuses, mostly men back then. But I was kind of a bit thrown in the deep end at Pathway. You know, happily for me, uh, a guy gave me a break. Mike right. Fine Silver, who owned the studio, gave, gave me a break. I was looking for a job in a studio. Okay. And right. he gave me a break. And then I was thrown into, uh, like, do it myself. So I, I, a lot of learning by doing. Right. And a lot of learning actually from the musicians who said, oh, uh, we, well, I want to do this, or how about we try this, or okay. something. So, so I was always, because I didn't know. I mean, there's some hugely creative uh, friends and colleagues who came up as assistants as well, of course. Yes. yes. But but I kind of feel, because I didn't know what I was doing, I was happy to try anything. And, and obviously, from trying anything, you were responsible for creating some incredibly influential records. Some some things worked. I mean, the, 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 even even on a big record, the experiments you try that fail yeah. uh, are not suitable. They don't appear, you yeah, know. Sure. Uh, of course they don't, but... 
But actually, I don't think there's any failure involved in making art. The thing is to actually do it. And then, as yeah. you always learn, don't you? you? Yeah, you learn if it works or you learn if you don't work. And you yeah. learn that it doesn't work in this context, but it might work in another context. Right. That was one of the big discoveries I had. Because when I was younger, I was a lot more ego-driven. So that if someone didn't like one of my ideas, I might be a bit offended, you know. But as I grew up, I realised that just because the idea is not appropriate in this musical context, doesn't mean it could also be a genius idea. You put it on the shelf and you you pull it down five years later and use it, offer it in a different musical context. How, how do you deal with that as a as a producer when when someone says they don't like something? When I was younger, yeah. then I would uh, you say how do you deal with it? when you you sulk. Because they, 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 yeah. they don't like your idea. Quiet you so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the matter with him? But I think as you uh, as you uh, broaden your horizons, yeah. I mean, you know, we know, don't we? Especially, uh, is, there's a very clear um, aspect of this in mixing. A lot of my commission work now is is mixing. Sure. Uh, what's important in mixing is that uh, the the client likes the mix. I got a very broad palette. Like, like we all yes. have. You know, there's a million things we can do. There's a yes. million ways of getting to a good mix and everyone gets there in their own way. Yes. But the point is, it doesn't matter if I like the mix or not. Right. What matters is that the person I'm making the mix for, and it is a kind of a humble job in many ways, that what matters is that they should be delighted. For, and for instance, like now, when the artist, when, it's usually the artist is the, is, the, is the main visionary in saying if the client. mix is there, the client, usually yeah. the artist could be yeah. a, a very creative A&R person. But when the client says they're happy with the mix, then I stop. Whereas uh, when I was younger, right. sometimes I'd be like, oh no, I definitely can make it better. And I'd right. carry on for two more days. Okay. Total waste of time. This is something I've shared with many of my, some of my younger colleagues. Yeah. Uh, where they are also driven to to go, and I said, "But hang on a minute! You told me that the singer said he loved the mix, so so, so why stop. Are you playing around with so it? why are you playing around with it? Yeah. Stop now! Yeah. Why, yeah. Because it's not for you to say. There's a lot of you have to put a lot of ego aside yeah. in great group work. Anyway, I don't think this is limited to uh, music. Probably, no. well, probably art in general. Probably, really. yeah, yeah. It could be uh, you're making a film. It could or... be, yeah. It could be uh, probably in many team. In in many in football even sure, you know yeah. of course uh, talented people have egos yeah. but sometimes you have to put your ego aside and say it's better for me to pass the ball to my colleague than to try who, and take than on. to try and take it myself yeah. you know so 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 ego generally gets in the way but you know when you're twenty and full of testosterone then uh, uh, it's hard to uh, have that perspective. And God knows what else. <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah, it's not just testosterone we're full of at, at 20. How, how did you get involved with Mute? I built, uh, I helped John Fox build the garden studio, as you mentioned in your yeah. intro, yeah. which is around the corner from here, now now closed down, of course. Basically, I was engineering for John quite a lot. In, in the eight, in the, I met John in the 8-track, and uh, he got a bit of money together and he wanted to build a studio, and I was his engineer, so... I, I kind of advised on the gear. I mean, I didn't really know anything about it, but like do looking back, what you had? Do you remember I what do you remember had? we bought an Amec uh, twenty five twenty, I think. Oh wow! And uh, MCI JH twenty four, and uh, it was the concept was a. This is quite funny actually for the nerds. The concept was a tr- 
it was marketed as, like Transformers were marketed as bad in this period in the 80s. Okay. So the thing we built was a Transformerless studio, which is really funny now, because now you can't wait to put all the audio through like 12 Transformers yes, to make exactly, it sound yeah, fat. Yeah, completely, yeah. But yeah. it doesn't matter. We built, a, uh, it, we built John invested, and, and I helped put together a bunch of gear. So what we got basically is a cool, artistic, electronic music electronic musician has built his own studio so uh, uh mute's working out of blackwing a lot uh, it's, right, uh, yes. uh they got the difficult third album coming up for depeche mode they are looking for uh, another studio to work in just for not that they fell out with eric and and john but but they just wanted a change they felt they needed some kind of change they didn't know what which album was that was that construction time yeah, again it was, yeah. yeah so they came to john's studio they thought, oh, they heard about, you know, there was probably pre-internet. They Somehow they'd heard about John's studio. thought, oh, that could be cool. And it wasn't like a rock and roll studio. It was like minimal and uh, like uh, electronic. We loved electronics, you know, so it kind of fitted. So they came to the studio. Um, John, John Fox said to me, uh, oh, this band Depeche Mode are coming down the studio to check it out. Uh, it'd be a good session for you to do. Then I said... Uh, I'm not doing that, John. They're on the radio. I, <laughs> I just didn't seem right. You know, I was into okay. jazz, weird jazz and reggae, and I was doing uh, some, I was recording a systems group called The Lost Jockey. Uh, it wasn't really my music, I thought. You thought? Okay. So, so I said no. Yeah. And um, uh, they, they came down and they checked the studio out with another engineer, and uh, they liked the studio vibe, but they didn't like the engineer. Luckily for me, because it turned right. into a lifelong friendship, yeah. particularly with the record company boss, Daniel. Yeah, sure. One of my dear friends and mentors, I yeah, suppose. Course, but yeah. now I'm much more of a colleague and friend. And um, so so John came back to me again as my mentor again, you know, and said, look, Gareth, they like the studio, but they didn't like the engineer that I got. He said, he said go over there and meet him, you know, basically right. wagging his finger at me. Seemed like a lot, he was a lot more experienced than me and a lot, Seemed like a lot older when I was in my twenties. He's probably only about four, four years older, or five years right, older, yeah, or something. Yeah, at that but time, at that yeah. time, he seemed yeah. like much, massively experienced. He'd made like four albums or something. You know. So, anyway, so that what? So I went over to uh, Kensington Garden Square, I think it was then, okay. and I met uh, the band and Daniel. And uh, of course, they were like normal, nice, normal, weird people. And I was perfect, like, oh, cool. That's a kind of <laughs> fit. Yeah. So they luckily, I mean, I suppose we were kind of interviewing each other, really. I mean, I, okay. you know, I didn't, I mean, not really. I wasn't, I just thought, okay, I'll go over there and met him. And uh, we took it from there. Would you say that that's kind of a, a very definitive moment for you? Yeah, so it's like sliding doors, isn't it? Like, right. that, you know, it's like you got on the tube or you didn't get on the, you know. Yeah. But sure, that was, that turned into uh, some very long friendships. I met some wonderful people, uh, yourself included, through that through that single meeting back yeah, then. Thank you. I mean, we might have met anyway, but no, you know, no, sure. still. And uh, uh, I met my wife through that connection, you know, wow. uh, somehow wow. many years later, yeah. and so on. So, so yeah, a, very important. A pretty important finger wagging from that from, from your John. Boss. Yeah, thanks, John. <laughs> 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 well, I think I just I, I like this story because that's why it's so awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Because actually, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I was like, no, that's I'm not doing mind, that. Yeah. And beyond, and I mean, there was a. I was incredibly fortunate to work with um, such a creative bunch of people, and yeah. who had massive 
you know, success due to the wonderful songwriting and the yeah, awesome marketing and everything they did. I was obviously a small part of that. That was amazing. But beyond that, the creative relationships and the the learning that I went the curve that I went through was. Uh, it's really funny how you say this is why judgment is not helpful. We okay. as little apes. Yes. You know, we always judge. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? Yeah. You can't fucking tell if it's good or bad yeah, until sure. afterwards. And, and in the studio, if, if you're trying to be creative, judgment actually can be the killer in We'd, some ways. I agree with that, Kevin, very much. We uh, One of the things that um, uh, the Spiritual Friendship Project that I is with my friend Nick Hook in, yes. in Brooklyn, we're doing our own music, uh, which has been a wonderful uh, uh, journey and, and uh, growth experience for both of us. Uh, one of the early things that we hit on with that record was no judgment. Wow. So, so that, of course, we in, in, the, in when we're creating stuff. So, yeah. so because... When you're write, you writing. Well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. When I mean, you're it, it's, it's, okay, it's, there's it's, no dismissing anything. No, no, everything, you're open to everything. There. Everything, if you're in the room with someone, yeah. all ideas get tried. Yeah. And it's Excellent. very easy to say... And I, and I, that's so important. I feel when you're when you're collaborating as a creative team, yeah. to not shut each other down. So then you started with Depeche Mode, and you had Mute, and then had great success. Yeah. Um, and then you followed that up by working with Vince Clark and Erasure, and you were doing something very unique back then when you were with your work with Andy. I feel because you were primarily responsible for recording Andy. He would use you and only you, as far as I can remember, to record his vocals, um, which nowadays there are vocal engineers. Yeah. Yeah. But you were one of the first people to do that. That came about... I met uh, Vince and Andy through um, Diamanda Gallas, actually. She was kind enough to mention to Andy that she felt that I had some understanding of recording voice. And right. really, I'm not even sure it is about the actual recording. I feel it was about giving the vocalist the space to express themselves. It always seemed a bit odd when I started recording that we'd spend, like, if we had a day to record a track... Say we had a 14-hour day to record a track back in the 8-track. We'd spend like 12 and a half hours on the band and then yeah. the vocalist <laughs> would get like 20 minutes to do the vocal. That which always is, seemed a bit... very strange. That just seemed a bit odd out, to yeah. me because yeah. obviously as a listener, I remembered, well, you know, as a young... Before I understood how, how records were made or before I even worked out how songs were constructed, yeah. I would... Be, I, I, I have this... I can, I can feel a memory somewhere about... Uh, this thing were vocal and a bunch of noise behind it. So it's like a 50-50 thing, you know. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that really you, it's probably worth spending half the time on the vocals. You then started the mixing in the box revolution because you were mixing in the box way before anyone I knew. When did that start? I think that started, well, actually partly just for the sheer bloody-mindedness of it, I thought, I, I realised quite early on, I, I remember uh, having a, a few plugins on an early laptop and, and thinking, hang on a minute, basically, this is like Hansa Mix Room that I can carry around under my arm. I mean, it, it probably wasn't, in the, as we all know, 
uh, everyone of my age knows anyway, in the early days, it wasn't that good. Yeah. Uh, but now, obviously, it's incredible. Yeah. But, but in the early days, it wasn't that good. But still, I had this idea. I thought, oh, wait a minute. I got two space echoes. I got three reverbs. I got four compressors, you know, and suddenly it's, it seemed like I'd almost got the whole outboard rack of the Hansa mix room in my laptop. So I thought I'd try and do some, some work like that. Right. Um, and there was probably a, a budget driven thing as well at some right, stage okay, okay. i probably got offered to do something but when i didn't have a studio to mix in yeah and there was no budget really and someone said can you help and i thought right i'll, I'll try it on my laptop okay uh in the same way that i've tried doing a bit of work on the ipad the same oh, really? uh, same same vibe where i've gone up uh, i've been on holiday in greece i thought okay i'll do this remix on the ipad Interesting. And, and you know just for the sheer fun of it really yeah, i suppose sure. just mucking about i think that is quite fair to say that you were one of the very first people mixing solely in the digital domain. So I was very interested in computers all the way down. Yeah. Uh, so that when, uh, and actually back to Erasure for a moment, because I'm, I was lucky enough to make a few royalties, a bit of royalties off uh, with uh, Vince and Andy, I invested most of that money in the early um, digital computing Macs. I had an SE30 with a DigiDesign sound card and then a four-channel sound card in my Mac 2FX, whatever it was. This is all super vintage Macs, right? Yes, yeah, but it right. cost a lot of money. Yes, they did, cost yes. a lot yeah, of Thousands, money. thousands yeah, and thousands. Unbelievable. Yeah. But it was super fun and it was a great learning curve and now it doesn't really matter. But I, I, I had a instinct that, because there were a number of ways it might go, there was a standalone system called radar there yes, was a standalone digital recorder was quite good and i never was that interested in that i was I, the idea of having um here a studio vision the cds on the wall there still uh, for the original studio vision where it says yes. deluxe cd oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea that you could have audio in the sequencer i just thought was genius obviously because yeah. sequencers are cool yeah because we, we we were quite lucky we we grew up in that evolution we, we were alive when that evolution took place yeah and yeah, it, it had its moments. I mean, you know, the computer would fall over on a regular basis. Sure, it's super challenging. Um, you know, first of all, it was four tracks of audio, then it was eight tracks. Well, originally, it was stereo, wasn't it? Stereo yeah. editing <clears throat> rather than anything else. Yeah. Uh, with what sound tools. And then it eventually made its way into Logic and Cubase. Cubase well, audio and Logic audio. Yeah, and the first one was Studio Vision. Studio which vision. addressed right. the, which is, was also a Californian company, I think, and okay. it addressed. It was a great. There was a great software sequencer called Vision. Really, um, sadly, defunct now. They worked out a way to talk to that stereo card that we used for sound tools, okay. so that it appeared in the sequencer, and that was you know, kind of mind that was revolutionary. mind blowing. Yeah, yeah it's revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, it's all a bit retro now because it seems everyone's used to like three hundred tracks on their laptop. What I was getting at was that because I was I was natural. I was even at co when I went to college, which was long before I ever worked in a recording studio. I was very interested in computing, right. and so when all this shit started arriving, I was very excited by it. And I never saw it as a threat to the old way of working. I always just right. thought it was incredible right. yeah, new yeah, horizons. You, I, I loved you, it. You completely embraced I it. I really loved it. You know, no, I remember you turning up at mute with all with your with your Mac and you. MIDI keyboard and we're going oh what is that and you're just going yep stereo out on the desk yeah and we're like really well that's an easy session <laughs> <laughs> but you know but you know whereas today you know everyone's doing yeah rocking up as you say with the laptop it's another example of of your curiosity with recorded sound yeah 
you know. Yeah. And I find quite inspirational, you know, because yeah, yeah, you, you, you're always looking for that. Whereas a lot of people, as you say, are kind of shying away from it. Certainly, well, not now, because because if, if, if you're in your 20s, you were born into it, and therefore it's not unusual to, to work from a computer and stuff like that. But even those... That, that generation of people are now suddenly going the other way and starting to come into the analog domain, and they're starting to see, oh, actually, analog actually has a place in their sound. Yeah, you know, and, and, and uh, actually, uh, <coughs> a, a workflow. I, workflow. It's more about yes. workflow for me. And as it, uh, right. the I've just done the, uh, the new uh, record, uh, a portrait that I've just done with Jan Tiersen is all okay. analog, twenty-four track analog, analog mix to quarter inch, analog mastering, no digital pre-delay in the lathe, all done totally analog to vinyl. Uh, he pushed by him really. Um, is, is a great friend, and I've made a number of records with Jan now. Yes, yes. And I was very keen that, yeah. to uh, to support this. Uh, Voyage. What did that feel like going? So going I think back it's to over that. 25 years since I've made a complete record on analog top to bottom. And what did that feel like? Great, because the the and sound is awesome, but right. but more the workflow. This thing that we work with a well rehearsed band. The band had done like 25, uh, uh, no, 50 gigs before we even went in the studio. So it was like the, working in the 60s, where in the old days, in the back in the day, apparently, before I was born, they bands would go on the road with the material, rehearse it up, then go in the studio and record it. And that's how this one happened. So we set up, and, and I'm pushing it because I want to do the vocals live as well. They're thinking... And my vocals will be largely overdubbed, I think, when we go into the process. But it turns out that they could do the vocals live as well. So for a band, uh, it's an incredible experience. You roll the tape, immediately the, you know, the bar goes up. Because they yeah. want to come yeah. in and play back the tape and hear something amazing. Right. Because of the way that it's done. Uh, yeah, was, was maybe with, Pro Tools, with digital recording. Yeah, we can easily fix it. Yeah. You know, okay, I'm a bit out of tune there. No yeah. worries, we can melodyne that. Okay, it's out of time. Don't we'll time stretch. We'll, uh, you know, beat detective that. Yeah. And so on. Everyone yeah. knows that you can fix anything. Yeah. But, but the workflow of going on to, and the track limitation, of course, yes, is fantastic. Course. Because yeah. you've got, you might have eight mics on the piano, yeah. but you're only putting the piano on two tracks. That's right, you're mixing down. I was listening to Steve Albini talk about drum recording. Yeah. And he uses six channels. He'll mix down his toms, and then even on his overhead track, on the multi-track... There'll be room. It's got ambience and overhead yeah, yeah, mixed yeah, in. Yeah, You know, and that was like, oh, yeah, that's the old school days. And, and he, goes, a, he likes to commit to that. Yeah. He likes that. I mean, obviously, he knows what he's looking for in his studio. The man's a genius, yeah. anyway. Yes, but, exactly, know. in terms of recording. But um, but it's the commitment mixing. that makes him a genius as well. Yes, yes. You know, and I'd work like that with buses. Uh, you know, when I'm submixing, I try to have the drums come out, kick, snare, toms, and then overheads plus a room bus. Okay. So, so by the time it's all rooted down, basically, I've got six faders on my Behringer controller here, kick, snare, toms, and... Whoosh, rest of it you know room okay. plus overheads because it just it's partly because i come from that tradition but yeah because it's handleable man yeah, i can't sure. handle a mix with 45 drum tracks yeah i don't know where to start i've got a sub like everyone i've got to submix it got down to, got to, yeah, so that manage I, it. there we go okay six i can handle yeah okay are you using an analog front end in here yeah i got uh, i got uh, 14 input uh, fat busted 
um, which I like. Yeah, and so, culture, yeah. so I'm using 14 inputs like that. And then I've got uh, Clarifonic that I use on the output of the Busted as a bus EQ, okay. just like a nice treble, yeah. like my, my cheap version of, um, of uh, you know, a, Masson, a Massenberg. That right. I'm not paying for the lower frequencies. I'm, it's only treble boost. So that, that's amazing equaliser. I like it a lot. And then I've got uh, a few bits and pieces that I use on hardware insets. Okay. And then that I commit to, you know, and they might be run, like like a minute, you know, it might be running for a while. And I do use the modular quite a lot. I've got uh, bucket brigade delays and spring reverbs and echo phon here and magneto, all these like super cool delay processes. Yeah, I can I can see a lot of that Overdrive. in here actually. So and, that uh, that kind of runs. Again, it all gets committed, you know. If right. you, mainly, do you, record, do you record it back in? Yeah, you? of course. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mainly on a lead vocal, I might. Right. build a special effect i noticed on the leisure society album yeah the vocals on there are, are unbelievable i mean the singers obviously a fantastic singer yeah yeah they delivered but, great they did deliver treatment. great vocals yeah and that's an example actually where i very much enjoyed and it's always a bit of a gamble at first you know because b yeah. before you started working with people you build an effect and it's a it's a, another it's another thing where you have to a not judge Otherwise, you'll sure. never commit. And also, then you have to not be ego-bound because you have to be ready for them to say, oh, I don't like that. So with a combination of parallel drive from the um, big trees... Yeah, that's made by Steve, me. isn't it? Yeah. Steve, who yeah. used to work at Mute. Uh, yeah, yeah. He worked at Mute. Yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a lovely Very, guy, very creative a great guy. genius. And a, yeah. well, that's a real boutique company, isn't it? Yeah. What are they called? Audio Kitchen. Audio Kitchen, yeah. That's his own company. He he, he worked with Mutronics, didn't he? Yeah, Mutator they made, yeah, didn't they? He did made, help yeah. make the Mutator. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, the vocal, as we know, the vocal is so important. Yeah. And sometimes I I will build uh, outboard effects. Yeah. And even outboard, even sometimes I use the tweakers outboard compression. I mean, I noticed on that Leisure Society album, I mean, the vocal effects were unbelievable. Sometimes it's like really subtle delays. Is, is that would that be all coming some from of here? it could be yeah yeah and and again spring reverbs yeah. and and maybe through the course of a song you would have two or three vocal effects yeah sometimes it'd be quite dry yeah um and then other times it would be very atmospheric well when they sing loud i put more effects on really <laughs> that simple well <laughs> yeah in the choruses you yeah yeah <laughs> are you going to mix it the, the way you've mixed every track you've mixed ever in your no, life no man i'm going to listen to the rough mix uh, okay. like, like always, you know, right. and that's again something uh, that took me about twenty years to 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 twenty years to learn. learn. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, don't forget the rough mixes before were made on a cassette. There's some they weren't, but still they were very important. And I think I, you know, uh, I used to think, oh, the rough mix is irrelevant because they they've come right. to me to mix it, and therefore, and now of course the rough mix is sacred. So, right. okay. so you know, I've always got the rough mix in the rig, yeah. and it's always on a button where I can refer to. There's always something brilliant on the rough mix that I've missed. Yeah. You know, very rough mix led. I just mixed a lovely record, uh, a single track for a band from Norway called Major Parkinson. Okay. It's a beautiful song, and I, for some stupid reason, I got it into my head that the vocal sounded awesome dry. And it did sound awesome dry to me, right. but that didn't that didn't wash with the band. And of course, it wasn't like that on the rough mix, and 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 okay. that was a little example where actually I, I wasted my own time, and I fell in love with something that was not appropriate. Because nowadays, that rough mix can we say it's rough, 
But actually, sometimes it could be Might 75% been, of the song, yeah, if man, not more. And it could have been there for nine months. Yeah. It could have been there for a, lo- you know, a yeah. long time. I mean, there's no point in talking about how we used to work. No. But because it's built in a, in, a, in, a, in a DAW, the rough mix is a huge part of yeah. the... I mean, the, um, the Apparat record, LP5, yes. the rough mixes on that that Sasha did with his producer, Phil, Phil uh, they were incredible. You know, one or two people have been kind enough to say how amazing uh, the Apparat record sounds. Yeah. But I mean, man, it's it sounded amazing when it arrived. Do you spend a lot of time outside of the studio listening to music? Yeah, I still uh, I was an early uh, adopter of the Sony Walkman. Actually, I bought one in in San Francisco before they were available in Europe. Right. The, so headphones. Like, okay. So yeah, I got to, and I just um, gone. I just. Uh, I'm still uh, using Sony. Uh, you got your, you got your Dr. Dre Beats. Yeah, but I got they're 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 good for the gym. But I got some other. Oh, these awesome little Sony. Uh, these new little Sony earbuds. Are am- I mean, it's all only Bluetooth, but they're still they're amazing. So right, yes, okay. I try. I listen. I like listen. I, li- I love listening to vinyl at home as well. Right, okay, I listen to yeah. the radio a lot. Yeah. I'm a huge Radio Three fan. I'm classical okay, music yeah. was my first love because my dad's record collection was right. classical of course um i've inherited his vinyl actually i've got it all at home and that is quite wonderful yeah. to play if i play because my dad didn't have a lot of money so he only had one recording of each piece he'd only he wouldn't have he wasn't like a collector who'd have 20 recordings of beethoven's fifth symphony right but when i play my dad's old vinyl i just rediscovered like when he passed, I t- when my mum died, actually, we closed the house down and I took the vinyl and I played some of the early... I thought, that is somehow the definitive version of the, that wow. piece. So, yeah, big Radio 3 fan. So, oh, very often on in our house in the morning, I'll, pl- I'll put Radio 3 on, sometimes in the evening as well. Vinyl I still love. Uh, since I've discovered Tidal, with which high-quality streaming, yeah. um, I'm not listening to... I'm not buying so much vinyl, I'm ashamed to say. In the early days of streaming, when I was only listening to Spotify with its very compressed feed, yeah. uh, and Apple Music, again, very compressed feed, I was like thinking, if I liked it, I'd go and buy the vinyl and enjoy the real thing. Okay. You know? But now, I do that a lot less. Uh, if my friend makes a piece of vinyl... Um, then I'll buy it as a support and to have for love. Yeah. But but you know the tidal, especially now, the quality is extremely good. I've actually never listened to tidal. Well, they they've even gone to master now, so you can get ninety six k stuff if you deliver ninety six k and tick the right box. Yeah. Um, Mute is still struggling to do that. I've asked uh, Joff at Mute <laughs> if he can please find the box because I deliver this work in ninety six k, and I'd like to have it come back from Tidal at ninety six k. Do you record at ninety six k now? It depends on the track count. Uh, the spiritual friendship of my own stuff that is i know the track count is limited is 96 i'm not saying that i'm going to pick what is the 320 mp3 and what is the 96k kevin i'm not no. i'm listening to the music like i'm not a yeah. great technician i don't think i've so i'm not trying to pretend that i find the one awesome and the other completely crap yeah but i have noticed a little bit i feel uh, what archiving analog uh, and or any time the stuff goes analog, if you can bring it back in 96k, I think that's respectful for the yeah, future. Sure. So like a high yeah. quality archive, yeah. multi-track. I'm not going to archive that at 44, no. you know, because it just seems rude. Uh, and and also in working 96k, there's something about 
the intimacy and the way the high end I can screw tops on. I don't know. There's something I kind of prefer about it. Yeah, I, I agree. 96K for me does sound better than 48. If I had the computing power, uh, then I would do, you know, and I was doing big projects, I'd do everything at 96K just okay, for, for future proofing yeah, because it yeah. feels a bit it feels a bit more like analogue to me. When I'm working at 96K, yeah. I don't, I just think, you know what, it, I'm not that gutted that it's not on tape. I think it's actually, it's, there's lots of detail, there's lots of depth. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and there's restriction, like you say. Um, I mean, in Pro Tools, 96, there's only 96 tracks. Well, see, that's a, that only, yeah. only 96 tracks. How can that, we make yeah. a record with 96 tracks? Well, no, 96 voices. Uh, I think 96 voices. So yeah. you, you can have 128 tracks, but you can only play 96, 96 at once. At once yeah. you know, which, again, criminal. Criminal, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I just want to add one thing. Uh, a, a colleague of mine has spoke we spoke about this um uh, has had some projects delivered to him 96k yeah. that he couldn't play on his rig and he's done several like this now he's converted them to 441 and and mix and no one's ever noticed as well that's the other side of the coin so he's done the mixes the mixes have been signed off on and no one's ever said so so it's it is it's a subtle thing right I like it anyway. If I can do it, I like it. And I didn't when it first came out. When and it's all to do with prejudice. When my computer couldn't run ninety six k, I just thought, what a waste of time. You thought I'm not never. I'm not going to bother. No, that. it's pointless. Yeah. I thought no, it's all. But since I've since my computing powers expanded a bit and some track counts have gone down, yeah. then actually I'm thinking, oh, that's nice. You know, I'm on my little Mojo cord, my little cord Mojo D two A converter. That's my reference converter for home. Plugs oh, into yeah. the phone and shit. I get a green light when it's 96k. As long as, nice. so, so as long as your mixes are green, you're happy. I like to see the green light come on. <laughs> what's what's 48? What's Red. 44? One. Oh no, definitely <laughs> green every time. When when people want to come into the industry, what do you think? What's your thoughts on education? And when I say education, what I mean is universities and colleges who are teaching large numbers of people to use studio equipment do you think that's a help or, or a hindrance to the students themselves i think it depends on the student actually there's a, there's been there's a an assistant or two here who came through that course and they were great right really great uh, on the other hand we've all worked with people who come out of um, other colleges? Out of, well, and in any college, they yeah. come and they think they know everything, and they sure. haven't even made a record yet. You know, I love it when you get a, a email from a, a, a young person who's still perhaps at college, and in the sig it says producer, and then you think, <laughs> even have you even produced one record? Even you know, even one. And the other thing, of course, that happens is you know a lot of these uh, colleges are wonderfully well equipped with yeah. great teachers and great equipment. And I do, I have uh, gone and lectured myself and I've been a part of the MPG accreditation for the different colleges as well. Okay. Although that's not something I'm doing now. So they've been working, say, on massive, great SSL dualities yeah. and big Neve consoles and everything. And then they come to work with, say, me. And actually, they're in my little shed on a laptop. Were you at the, when Mute went into EMI, were you in that phase? Yes. I mixed records in a cupboard at EMI. I mixed a bunch of great records, essentially, in a cupboard, which is not very glamorous if you're a student. And you, have yeah. to, you have to have the right kind of headspace to make that adjustment and go, oh, actually, this is the real world. Yeah. The real world out here, there's not always a budget to be in Abbey Road or Air. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's clearly a good 
business model for the right student it can be a great help because sure. okay. especially as the number of assistant placements that have gone down you know yeah. you're now when i met you you introduced me to some great assistants who yeah. became great engineers and assistants for me who who i would have if I remember, most of those would have come from a university at some point. Because at that time, it even was just then, starting. it's just starting. Because that, that, if that's on their CV, you think, yeah. well, at least they've been serious enough to study for one year, two years, three years. That's but right. even more now, uh, you, it's very hard to get a placement as an assistant yeah. without some kind of background. I think all yeah. the new assistants that's here right. have been through some kind of college. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the seventies and eighties. You as at sixteen, you would apply to a, a studio and you become a runner, and you, you know, the classic t tea person, yeah. toilet Take cleaner, up, yeah. runner, sandwich, whatever, anything, sandwich fetcher, anything, yeah. anything, yeah. and and you'd come up that way. So it is, uh, it is experience, and and another thing about it is, I mean, it's it's useful to study anything. I think it helps. Right. To, you know, you could go to college and study Latin. Man, yeah. seems stupid to say that promotes new ways of thinking. I, for instance, I went to college, I studied science. It's nothing right. to do with what I do now. I, I did have a very creative, successful and passionate relationship with the computer department. Yeah. But this was punch cards and printouts on great big Fortran machines, you know. It's nothing to do with the computers that I use now. So the courses are valuable as long as we realise there aren't the jobs to go with the courses uh, and as long as we realise that the industry is not... The, the, there's a difference between the co the college and the industry. Yeah, you know, when I started working in little studios, it was basically punk. So yeah. so I wasn't a punk actually. I was more like a psychedelic hippie guy. But the ethos of punk, this, this do it yourself thing, was uh, was really inspiring for me. So and I, the, the, because there was no question that you couldn't just do it. That was one of the things that I took from punk. You just have to step up and do it. And the other thing I wanted to add, actually, was our friend uh, Bruce Gilbert from Wire yeah, has a yeah. wonderful phrase, um, beginner's luck. He has noticed over a very long, super creative career that if he comes to something that he doesn't know and uh, interfaces with it, cool shit happens that first particularly at the beginning that first 10 minutes yes. or one hour or that first day with yeah. the new pedal yeah. or something yeah. when you don't really know what's happening that 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 and i think that's wonderful and he, he he still i bumped into him recently and he spoke about that in the context of some new device he'd re recently purchased Amazing. not an expensive device i can't remember what it was even but he was like i i said i really believe in this beginner's luck thing you know as i <laughs> as great, i interface with thing, it actually. isn't it good you know that's a great way to describe it actually that innocence almost that you don't know what you're doing and you don't know how it's supposed yeah. to work and yet yeah. you can but of course you have to be able to get sound through it and that's one of the things i remember as you said now it's pretty easy with a an audio interface you just basically put the track on input and sound comes out of the speaker yeah. but it was a huge achievement for me in my early days <laughs> in the bbc <laughs> all in, of us. in the bbc i'm in a studio and to get a mic to come out of the speaker oh yeah on your own it was a process that, whoa man yeah. i remember being in night sessions on the uh, in the studio like uh, flummoxed you know puzzled challenged well, the, something know, that were, simple is so funny well yeah. it was something allegedly that simple but it wasn't actually if you if you think about it, do you have any particular things that you've always done or things that maybe you've done but changed over the years to give you the Gareth Jones sound? 
the first thing that comes to mind is I've totally built back into my mixing flow how I used to do it at the beginning. So I try and build a mix in a day and get it to the point where I can record it and take it home. How long so, does it take you to do a mix, roughly? Well, I try to get it. it, it depends, it's so much about the prep, isn't it? Okay. If you get 300 tracks and it's chaos, you have sure. to do some prep time. Yeah. Or, or if you're lucky, you might be able to hire an assistant to do the prep for you. Yeah. Um, so, But I try and get a mix done I try and get it up to a stage where the, everything's in and sounding all right. Yeah. Uh, and then as soon as I get it to that point, I record it, I bounce it, whatever, print it actually, and then I go home. And then I play it in the morning and make some notes. Okay. So which is how what I used to do at the very beginning. So in other words, once I've got it to that point where the whole song is in, which in an ideal world has happened in a, in a, in a day's work, yeah. then I don't fuck with it any longer okay. i take a break you step back from i step it. back i go yeah. home i do something else yeah uh, I, I i wake up in the morning i write my journal i have a cup of tea yeah. and i sit down and i play the mix back on my little stereo at home and i make some notes and then i come back in because i find that hugely more time effective i used to get everything in and then i would stay up till six in the morning still mucking about yeah. rather but it's for me that's not time effective as soon as everything's in and i can in, I mean, including the backing vocals, the whole song, the whole thing. where I could Every actually show, yeah. play it to the band. I don't play it to the band at that stage, but where actually the whole song is in, yeah. then as soon as I got that, and I think, oh, well, that's pretty good, then I'm, I kind of, and I'm almost racing against a deadline to get that done by 10 o'clock, say, or whenever okay. I'm leaving, or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you sure. know, to get out, get on the tube, chill out, go home, get a bit of supper, and then play it. And yeah. because I find that very time effective, the, the perspective because of course the longer I'm the longer you work on a, a, a mix the harder it is to maintain perspective right you know, okay. Okay. some of the uh, some of the great mix engineers around that I've seen working around in different studios it's almost like they always seem to be uh, in having a cup of tea or on the pool table those perspectives are valuable I think and I try and obviously you know it's all the things that everyone says, you know. Obviously, I don't, I don't go on the web. I don't answer emails. I don't have the phone on. Yeah. I try and do it like a three-hour session in the, in the old musicians' union rule. If I can get three hours focus on something, I yeah. can get a lot done. Yeah. You know. Sure. So if I can do three three-hour focus sessions in a day and get the mix to a point where I can actually say, well, everything's in, and it stops me pissing about to be honest yeah. i think well hang on a yeah. minute it's 9 30 yeah. i've yeah. only got an hour i need to get those bloody backing vocals yeah. in right Focuses now the and the string yeah. section come on and then I, I push to do that i find that very helpful okay do you have a, a, a favorite piece of gear that you're currently that you're always using apart from maybe Barefo your barefoots the barefoots yeah. yeah you love them there yeah, yeah and, they're, and they're great sound the speakers. other thing that's changed my monitoring vibe is uh sonar works I was very, when Trinoff came out, I was very suspicious of the DSP, the extra DSP. I've learned to love the Trinoff now because some very... Can you explain what, what that is to some people? Well, uh, what it is, is it's a measurement microphones that right. calibrate the monitors. So it's room, room In, correction? It's room correction. Okay. It's room monitor interface correction. Okay. So, for instance, in this room, even though I know this room really well, I was constantly having feedback from clients... The, the stuff was a bit bassy 
And then I, uh, a friend of mine, James, actually, it was James Aparicio, yeah. um, our mutual friend, yeah. who turned me on to Sonar Works, which is a cheap measurement mic and yes. a bit of software that you put on the output and you ping, it takes you about 20 minutes to ping the room. Yeah. And it turned out around about 100 hertz, I had quite a big suck at dip in this room. So, and obviously I like bass. So even though I know the room and I was referencing other pieces of music, I was still putting too much bass on the tracks. <laughs> so a good monitor system is sure. invaluable, isn't it? Can you suggest any things to avoid in the record-making process or the mix process or the production process that you can suggest to people? Don't listen to the critic. Don't listen to your own critic. Don't be shut down by your own critic. That little voice. I think that's so important. Yeah. You know, let's face it, I am not Quincy Jones. I am not Glyn Johns. I am not, you know, there's a millions, of, I'm not Kraftwerk. There are millions of great, awesome studio workers that I'm not. So if I've got this little voice on my shoulder telling me all the time how shit I am yeah. compared to other people, yeah. I'm never going to do anything. So I, f I feel it's really important to shut your own personal critic down. I've, and as we said earlier, yeah. to like to be, oh, and, and similarly, don't shut anyone else down in the room. Yeah. Try everything. Yeah. If you and I decide to make a record together, it's because we love each other and we trust each other. Yeah. And any idea that either of us throw into the room, no matter how absurd, is worth trying. For a long time, you know, we, we're all working in the studio and we're like a team and we're yeah. mates and, and we're working on the, you know, we feel very close and we've constructed this thing, whatever it is. And then the record company comes down, right, with yeah. their opinions. And it's like, oh, no, what? what? So, and, and for a long time, I found it very frustrating that people seemingly outside the process would come in with their opinions about what we were doing. And yeah. out, um, for fuck's sake, what do they know about it? And I've seen a lot of my younger friends and colleagues struggle with this. And now what I say is, hang on a minute. You and me put 10 grand into making a record, right? Yeah. We give it to an engineer and a band to go away and make the record. And then they come back to us and what they play us, we don't like. There's something wrong with it. And, and we put our own money. We put five grand in each. Imagine. Yeah. I say, what would, you, what would you do? Obviously, you'd go down the studio and sort it out. That's flipping it round, right? That's, that comes back to your uh, no idea is a bad idea. Uh, well, also it comes back around to the client's always right. The client's always right, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, funny enough, I, I was saying that at a lecture, you've got gates that you have to go yeah. through. You've got to get through the artist, yeah. the producer, yeah. the manager, yeah. the record company. Yeah, the artist's partner. And then maybe your record will go out into the world. Yeah. And you've got to find ways to get through those gates. Thanks so much for coming by, Kevin. It's great to see you. Great. Great to chat. Thank you very much. Cheers, brother. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Mixbus with me, Kevin Paul. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the whole series on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to join me for the next episode. And until then, goodbye.